today on Ag News Daily. Fungal growth and diseases usually come on due to high humidity. And again, because we are growing peanuts basically in a desert, we have very few disease issues, which then reduces the need for spraying pesticides. Good afternoon and welcome to a Friday episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how's your Friday going? Well, it's pretty dang cold here in Iowa today, Ashton. I think it was maybe 39, 35 when I woke up this morning, so it's pretty chilly. Well, it is about double that here in Lubbock, so I can't say I'm jealous. It's also, uh, Blaine just texted me that they were harvesting corn today. They didn't get rained out today. They got sleeted out, Ashton. That's how cold it is. Oh, goodness me. I am definitely not jealous right now. (laughs) No, I'm just ready for harvest to be over so we can have a little bit of normalcy again in our lives. But uh, I, I thought perhaps we would be done with corn harvest by the end of this weekend. I'm thinking that's not going to be the case now. Well, my heart definitely goes out to you, Delaney. But I have to admit something. I didn't realize how many crop harvests kind of coincide with one another because obviously I knew that corn and soybean harvest is typically going on right now and then cotton is kind of gearing up for mid to late October but we just had a conversation today about sugar beet harvest and about peanut harvest and everyone is just in the fields right now and I didn't realize how everything kind of moved together. I don't know if that's just me being silly or what. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of different crops that are having harvest season right now. You know, we usually talk about the main ones with corn and soybeans, wheat and cotton, but there are a lot of other commodities that are in the fields right now. And it's the best time of year, in my opinion, Ashton. Absolutely, Delaney. I love going on Twitter and seeing all the photos of families in the fields together. I I absolutely just love seeing like the little kids driving the tractors. I, I just absolutely love it. So my heart is definitely warm at this time. Mine as well. My body is not, but my heart is. Ashton. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I thought so too. But I tell you what, we better hop in and chat some news for today before we chat peanuts. Globally, uh, we are seeing a couple of different things come to light here. I saw this shared by, I know I've mentioned him quite a bit on the podcast lately, but he really is probably the best person to watch right now about fertilizer and their shortage and increasing prices. Josh Linville shared today or had a chain going today on Twitter talking about fertilizer shortages in other countries. And a follower shared this video on the thread showing that farmers in India are causing riots and tremors because they are so upset about the fertilizer shortage. And, you know, a couple of people are are thinking, no, this can't possibly be a real video. But Josh stepped in and said, yes, in fact, this is really going on in a lot of other countries where farmers are storming, you know, different government buildings, um, different retail buildings, et cetera, because of the acute shortage of fertilizer price or fertilizer products. So just crazy what we're seeing right now, Ashton. You know, Delaney, I also saw that video and I thought it was absolutely insane. It looked like they were having a Black Friday deal on fertilizer and everyone had to get their hands on it. Yes, that is a good way to put it. It's yeah, Black Friday when, you know, crazy soccer moms are beating each other for the last iPad or whatever. It's just like that, but probably more intensified. 
Yeah, probably a little bit more serious than that, Delaney. But another item that I think is a little comical, but pretty serious is the use of ivermectin as a solution to COVID-19. We've talked a little bit about it before on whether or not it actually works, but a lot of people have been buying up ivermectin and trying to use it as a way to prevent or treat COVID-19. And Health Canada is reminding Canadians that ivermectin should not be used to treat or prevent COVID-19 after poison control centers saw an increase in reports about the anti-parasitic over the summer months. In a warning on its website, Health Canada said that ivermectin has been authorized for human use as a prescription drug to treat parasitic worm infections, and it has not been authorized for use against COVID-19. So if you are one of the people out there that has used ivermectin as a solution, and to be honest, My dad did use ivermectin when he had COVID and he said that it helped him feel a little bit better. I don't know if that's a placebo effect or what, but if you are using it, I would tread lightly so you don't have to call poison control. Every time you say the word ivermectin, Ashton, I don't know why, but the image I get in my head is the scene from Ghostbusters, the old one where they're all like strapped up in their suits with their Ghostbuster like whatever shooter thing and they're gonna go snag some ghosts i don't know why that is the image that comes to my head when you say that but that's what was running through my head that whole story i don't know why either delaney i guess it's just because it's halloween season spooky season and maybe it sounds kind of a spooky word yeah (laughs) well delaney what other news stories do you have to talk about today anything else spooky No, nothing spooky, but I do have an update here, kind of a two-part story, not really related. I mean, sort of loosely related here for the beef industry. I'll kick things off with the good good piece of news first, or the more exciting piece of news, I think I should say. Up in North Platte, Nebraska, there is an announcement now that a new two that in two years, really, a new beef processing facility could be sitting in America's heartland, giving cattle producers another outlet for marketing and reaching consumers and a little more competition. This new plant, Sustainable Beef LLC, would be able to process about 1,500 cattle a day, and it would not have a feedlot, feedlot tied to it, so it would be an independent region supplier. And They said with a name like Sustainable Beef, they're expecting to focus on specialty premium markets that would help producers see improved profit margins. I'm going to couple that here with this other piece of news that I don't think we mentioned on the podcast, so I apologize if we already have. But earlier this week, we saw House lawmakers are continuing to seek to improve cattle transparency in the industry with a new act called the Cattle Market Transparency Act of 2021, which would amend the current Agricultural Marketing Act, which was made back in 1946. So it does seem like it's time for a little bit of a change here. Now, this new act, which was put forth by Representative Dusty Johnson and excuse me, Representative Henry Kuehler, introduced this resolution as a push to provide what they're calling price discovery and market transparency, which the bill in its essence would do a couple of different things like making a user-friendly format to provide a weekly and regularly updated library of prices provide weekly and monthly reports, and include information specifically on 
prices, the type of contract, the duration of the contract, the total number of cattle solely committed to the packer each week within the six and 12 month periods, and a description of the provisions in that contract to add some clarity. So really what it's doing here is trying to make both prices and the product sold transparent to the general public, Ashton. Delaney, I'm glad that you were able to read up on all of that because to be honest, I've seen a couple of headlines about it, but I did not look into it as much as you did. So I'm glad that one of us is doing our homework and I'm the one that's in school. I should be the one doing the homework, but Anyway, bad dad joke there. So I'm going to move right (laughs) along here and talk about some stuff concerning Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack. As you reported yesterday, he's been doing some touring around the Midwest. And on his schedule today is an announcement focused on rural infrastructure improvement. It has been said that the USDA has set aside another $1.15 billion for rural broadband improvements through the ReConnect program. On November 24th, the agency will begin accepting applications for loans and grants to extend availability to, of broadband to rural areas. Prioritizing projects serving low-density rural areas with slow internet speeds. USDA is also making a $50 million investment towards 105 projects in 27 states through their distance learning and telemedicine program. Distance learning and telemedicine have been such a major thing. I, I, I'm not putting my words, you know, very intelligently here, but they've been so big during the COVID-19 pandemic that they are investing, I mean, $50 million. That's a lot of dollars to go towards those things. So I'm glad that we have the ability to do that. And as of right now, I don't think that an announcement has been made, but Secretary Vilsack is supposed to be making an announcement at Hammond Henry Hospital in Illinois today to talk about the program a little bit more in depth. And he's said to make a couple more announcements later this afternoon. So hopefully next Monday or this Monday, I should say, we will have a little bit more information to talk about there. Fantastic, Ashton. Glad you're keeping an eye on his travels here in the heartland. But I tell you what, I've got just one other quick piece of news here before we hop into the markets. And that is pork margins over in China. Pork, poor pig feeding margins, that's a little bit of a tongue twister there, <laughs> have continued to impact China's ability to rebuild their hog herd. According to China Direct, which is a, uh, I don't know what it is. According to China Direct and their Shanghai office, they're saying that the average purchase price of hogs by large feeding companies is up about 8.1% month to month, reflecting some sort of turn return to some cautious normalcy. Uh, but they're saying that's still down 56% year over year, reflecting overall poor demand for restocking. So we are continuing to see China push the envelope there, but they are not finding it to be a profitable profitable business right now to replace those hogs. And that could impact their overall ability to 
boost their pork production, which of course could trickle in in a couple fronts here for the United States. One, we could see that being positive for our pork and beef producing friends as they continue to push product out of the country, but not so positive on the soybean, soy meal side of things, as that is a major buyer typically of uh, U.S. products. So just a story there to consider watching in the future. Absolutely, Delaney, but I am all out of news for today, so I am anxious to see how markets ended today. And we had some good news here for the corn and wheat markets. Not such a good day for soybeans. So starting out here in the corn contract, the December up five and three quarter cents to close at 538. The March up five and a quarter to close at 546 and three quarters. In soybeans, November down three and a half cents to close at 12.20 and a half. The January down two and three quarter cents to close at 12.30 and three quarters. In spring wheat, the December of 31 and three quarter cents to close at 10.17. The March up 23 and a half cents to close at 9.91 and a quarter. Heading over here into livestock, not such a great day here across the board. Starting out in live cattle, the December down a dollar twenty-two and a half to close at one twenty-eight thirty-two and a half. The February down a dollar twenty-seven and a half to close at one thirty-three fifty. In feeder cattle, the November down two and down two dollars seventeen and a half cents to close at one fifty-six ninety. The January down two dollars sixty-seven and a half cents to close at one fifty-seven thirty-two and a half. In lean hogs, the December up twelve and a half cents to close at seventy three thirty two and a half. The February down five cents to close at seventy six sixty two and a half. Rounding out things with our class three dairy milk futures, wish we could end on a high note here, but not so great. In the November contracts, down twenty seven cents to close at nineteen sixty four. The December down nineteen cents to close at nineteen forty five. With that, I'm going to kick it over to our National Nut Day interview with Shelly Nutt. Well, like we said yesterday, we have a special interview today talking to Shelly Nutt, who is the Executive Director of Texas Peanut Producers Board, helping us celebrate National Nut Day today. So Shelly, thank you so much for coming on and helping us celebrate. Oh, it's my pleasure. Always a pleasure to be on and talking about my favorite thing, peanuts. Well, Shelly, I would love to talk to you a little bit more about peanuts here, and that's exactly what we're going to do today. But before we get into that, I want to know a little bit more about you and how you got to be involved with Texas Peanut. Um, You know, it's a bit of a crazy story. I was working for the Texas Corn Producers Board and had been with that board for 16 years. I was currently serving as the assistant to the executive director when um, a few of the board members from the peanut board stopped by the office to talk to someone. They were thinking about building an office, and they were thinking about relocating um, and joining us in a little area where we had built offices next door to the sorghum people um, there in Lubbock, Texas. And so they had stopped by to visit and wanted to know what land costs were and what the building costs and what it was like, you know, what were utilities running and um, how much were we paying our staff? And just some real general questions. And, um, you know, and I provided all the information for them, had a really great visit with them. They left. And about three weeks later, the chairman of the 
of the um, peanut board called me and said, hey, we're looking for an executive director and would you be interested in applying? So it was totally out of the blue. Um, I talked to my boss and said, you know, this is what's going on. And he said, do it, apply for it. And they hired me. To be honest, I think they hired me because my name is Shelly Nutt. (laughs) The nut part of my name is obvious, right? But then what do you do to a peanut? You shell it. So that is very fitting. Partners are shellers. Yeah. (laughs) So I honestly think that the only reason they hired me was because my name fit the position. And thank God for that. Um, (laughs) Because it's been such a fun ride. You know, peanuts are a really fun commodity. Um, you know, they're healthy, super high in protein. They've got so many great health benefits to them. So it's just a really fun commodity to work for. And it is very fitting, like you said, that your name is Shelly Nutt, but probably a little bit better fit for you than the Corn Growers Association there in Texas. But Shelly, I'm interested to talk a little bit more uh, about peanut production because yeah, as we were chatting a little bit earlier, there are different types of peanuts produced across the United States, different areas produced. And I've got to admit, I'm a little naive when it comes to peanut production. What different types of peanuts are out there and how do different climates grow different types of peanuts? Those are great questions. So Texas is the fourth largest peanut producing state in the country. Georgia's number one, of course, and then following them is Alabama, Florida, and then Texas. What makes Texas super unique is that we're very much a desert, very, very arid, um, low humidity, high heat which creates a really great growing condition for peanuts. Um, We're different in that uh, fungal growth and diseases usually come on due to high humidity. And again, because we are growing peanuts basically in a desert, we have very few disease issues, which then reduces the need for spraying pesticides. So Texas has a great growing condition for the peanuts. We're almost 100% irrigated. I can't say we're 100% irrigated on our peanut crop, but almost. So being able to um, supplement rainfall with irrigation, being able to time that irrigation right when those peanuts need the water put to them, uh, creates a peanut that's aflatoxin-free for the most part and in most years. Um, It also just creates a really visually attractive peanut. So Texas is also unique in that we grow all four types of peanuts, and those types are runners, which goes into peanut butter mostly, Virginia's, which are the big ballpark peanuts you buy that are in shell, Uh, Valencia peanuts, which is a sweet, earthy-tasting peanut, and organic, uh, it's used a lot in organic peanut butter, and then Spanish, and Spanish are the cute little round peanuts with the uh, red skin that you'll, and they're also on paydays, so we grow all four types, which is completely unique to Texas. And we also grow hyolaic peanuts, which the increased linoleic content in the peanut is good for adding shelf life and stability to the peanuts. And then we also grow peanuts organically. Um, again, because we do have such an arid climate, uh, we don't have the disease pressure that other parts of the country have. So we grow really great organic peanuts in Texas. So even though we're fourth in size, we have a very niche market for our peanuts um, and makes us very unique. We have different buyers for our peanuts that other parts of the country don't have. Um, so we may not be large in production, but 
I think that were very large in value and importance to the industry. So I have a little bit of a follow-up question here because I know I'm, I'm based here in Lubbock. So I know that we have some peanut producers here in the Panhandle region, but my great-grandfather, he was a peanut farmer in Lavernia, which is around the San Antonio area. So my question is, since we have, you know, these four types of peanuts, are they all grown in, you know, one particular region or are they kind of just mix and matched all across Texas? That's a really good question. Uh, 70% of the state's peanut production is grown in West Texas, close to where you are, Ashton. um, Gaines County is the number one peanut producing uh, county in the country. So on a per acre um, basis, Gaines County is number one. So they grow a lot of peanuts there. Um, So West Texas is the number one growing region in the state, and that's mostly Gaines County, Cherry County, Yoakum County. And then um, there's smaller pockets. One of them is in the Clarendon area up in the Panhandle. There's another one in the Haskell and Vernon uh, area. Another one south of San Antonio and Frio and Atascosa counties. Um, And then there's an area near De Leon and Stephenville that grows peanuts. And so there's some small pockets around the state, but West Texas is the biggest part of, of the growing region in Texas. So, Shelly, aside from weather and market impacts, what are other things impacting the peanut industry right now? The pandemic was impacted peanuts. Uh, you know, the pandemic impacted all commodities. I, I don't. In fact, it, in, the pandemic affected everything, um, not just ag commodities, but everything. We both, we all know that. But in the peanut industry, it impacted us a little bit more. And that's because when businesses, uh, when everyone started working from home, businesses closed. Not not closed, but everyone everyone started working from home. But then we also had kids at home too, right? Well, parents were still trying to work. Kids were having to somewhat take care of themselves and fend for themselves while parents were on Zoom calls or, or in a bedroom working from home. Um, and so we saw peanut butter consumption really, really rise um, during the 18 months of the pandemic. And we're actually still seeing that trend where we're not losing ground. We're still seeing consumption uh, on the rise and starting to steady out. But, I, you know, I hate to say that something good come from the pandemic, but in the peanut world, we did see increased consumption. Um, it was like people had that hadn't eaten peanut butter sandwiches in years refound it again because it is so simple. Uh, it doesn't require cooking, you know, so you could see a five-year-old in making themselves a peanut butter and jelly sandwich if they needed to because their parents were busy. So um, we saw peanuts actually do well during the pandemic and continue to do well, which is great for my growers. When our supply, when the demand rises and depletes our supply, then that just creates more room for more acres of peanuts for my farmers to grow more. Um, So peanuts actually did well. I I know not all commodities did, but we did. We were, um, we were actually okay during the pandemic. 
And that is certainly good news to hear, Shelley. We've talked with a couple of different people involved in the food sector, and they all talked about how people were really just going back to the basics and going back to comfort foods and things that they ate as a child just to bring them that little piece of joy. So I'm glad that there is something light that we can think of whenever we're thinking of the pandemic. But moving on here, I just have one more question personally, and that is about harvest and how harvest went this year because we just wrapped up here in Texas. Is that correct, Shelley? No, we're still, we are right in the middle of harvest. And um, I'm so glad you asked me this. Uh, my peanut farm is across the state and I try to talk to my board members pretty regular during harvest season, even though they're super busy. I like to know where they are, what it's looking like, if they're seeing any problems. And all of them that I talk to, all the way from Clarendon to South Texas, uh, said that they're looking at average to above average yield. Some of them are talking about having the best crop they've ever seen. Um, you know, we had rainfall this year in Texas that we're just not used to. It does not rain in Texas in July. And we were seeing some showers going across and cooling things off. Um, so the increased rainfall, the cooler temperatures, we set such a good crop. It's so exciting to get to talk about that because there's so many years that I'm saying, you know, the drought has killed us. We're not going to have a great crop. This year is the year. 2021 is a great year for peanut harvest for our peanut farmers because they are um, they are harvesting really, really good quality peanuts and very, very high yielding peanuts. Um, and and it's still, West Texas is kind of on the downhill side of their harvest, but we've got guys in South Texas that are just starting. So we kind of, we're pretty much going from guys that are, have completely wrapped up to people that are just now putting the diggers in the ground. Well, Shelly, it has been great to get to know a little bit more about you and Texas Peanut. If any of our Texas listeners want to support Texas Peanut, how can they do so? You know, eat eat snacks, eat peanut butter, eat candy bars that have peanuts on them. Um, you know, peanuts are something that we do grow right here in Texas. So anytime you're grabbing a, a snack off the the shelves or you're or you're grabbing a jar of peanut butter, you are helping our Texas peanut farmers. Every peanut that's displaced just allows room for another one to come in and take its place. So I would say just keep eating peanut butter. Um, buy peanut butter for your local food banks, especially during the holidays when we have kids out of school. Uh, now that the kids are back in the school setting, you know, they're going to be home for a few weeks during the holidays. Peanut butter at food banks is so important because it gives the kids that are home during those few weeks a really great healthy protein. So buy peanuts, buy peanut butter, donate it. Um, it's just such a great commodity to eat yourself and to share with your neighbors. Well, Shelly, thank you once more for coming on and chatting with us today. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be on. Thanks again there to Shelly for coming on the podcast to talk about Texas peanut producers and what's going on in that industry. I definitely don't know actually if it's just me being a native Texan and having a lot of pride for my state, but I think Texas is definitely unique, like she said there, when it comes to peanut production. So I have 
actually some Texas peanut butter in my pantry. So I'm going to run out of here and go have some of that with an apple. With that, I'm going to let the people go.